0: This is Difference Makers, and I'm your host, Adam Van Brummer. On our latest episode, Chatham County District Attorney May Heap talks about growing up in Savannah in a large family, finding her professional passion, and leading a team in a highly stressful work environment. The Difference Makers podcast is brought to you by an organization making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. D.A. Meg Heap is our Difference Maker today. She's served as Chatham County's lead prosecutor since 2013, after winning a contentious election in November 2012. She won reelection in 2016, running unopposed. She's a slightly built woman, but has a reputation as a brawler, both in the courtroom and in executing her other duties. She'll challenge judges, state agencies, and more, as we'll talk about in this episode. She's a fierce advocate for victims and for justice, but is also a strong believer in intervention and other proactive ways to curb criminal behavior. As you'll hear, she's also one of the more authentic leaders in this community and a true Difference Maker. Here's the interview. Pleased, actually very excited today to have our local district attorney, Meg Heap, joining us on Difference Makers. And Meg, as I've explained, we we always start with a little biographical information because the listeners tend to really get something out of getting to know a little bit more personally about the the people that they read about and hear about and and all the time here in town and uh you like me or you're you're more of a savannian than i am but you're not a savannian you
1: have to be what two generations (laughs) yeah uh, my dad was military he was stationed here i think back in the 50s um and uh when he retired he came down here got a job and he worked for this uh georgia regional for 30 years i think before he retired
0: just moved he wanted to be warm weather
1: he did actually i think he found a job okay so he was both my parents from from both my parents were military um air force and then they dad found a job here and they liked it when they were here in the 50s and so um we came here when i was about four
0: okay lived on the south side went to local parochial schools
1: i did i do grew up in windsor forest that was my neighborhood and it's changed i mean i can remember you know lots of woods running those running around those when i was a kid um but um one of eight kids we grew up went to st james and then i went to st vincent's
0: eight kids yeah you've, the oldest youngest somewhere in the middle
1: i'm there i've got two younger and five older yeah um it, it, i always remember we used to go to the commissary since my father was retired from the military mm-hmm. and uh i guess hunter was closed so my mother would drive all the way down to fort stewart to get the you know i mean it was better prices mm-hmm. and she'd pick up um eight gallons of milk and so we could only have milk at during the summers. We'd have milk at breakfast and dinner. Other than that, you had to drink water because she only went to the store once a week. Only a limited amount of money.
0: And big families always kind of fascinate me. What uh, what's what was the dynamic like? And I, it's. it's big catholic family yeah
1: yeah um there were five girls three boys so the five girls and my grandmother also lived with us so we we had a house full um the five girls lived in one room um so yeah i had two older sisters uh my mother i guess they call them irish twins the older Mm -hmm. ones were 11 months apart so she would have one after another and then there was a four-year gap in me um it was good i always say coming from a big family um if you're fighting with one sister you could always have another one to play with uh but i think it also why i talk so quickly because um, mm-hmm. you had to make your statement get it in because you somebody's going to talk right over you
0: Five girls in one room, how many bathrooms?
1: One bathroom. My parents had their own, and you could not use that. That was theirs. So there was many a morning, you were waiting, bam, on the door. Because I had sisters in high school, and you know, you primp in high school. Um, And so you were bam, on the door, and you only had five minutes. It was very, both parents, uh, military, it was very regimented. So it was good.
0: Interest-wise, athletes, uh, artists,
1: musicians—in the family, okay. um, not me. Um, not I did. I played uh, basketball all the way up to high school, and then um, got my first job when I was 15. Okay. My parents, uh, you know, you you had to work. Um, and I really wanted to go to St. My older sisters went to Windsor Forest. I wanted to go to St. Vincent's. So the deal with my parents was, we will um, pay for your tuition, anything else you have to pay for. So okay. I got a job and started working, and I've worked ever since. I think the only time I haven't worked was um, law school, which I think it was a mistake, because I did law school loans. I should have worked. It probably, I would not still be paying them off.
0: Right yeah babysitting restaurant oh
1: yes babysitting i worked at spanky's um i was a waitress i was a hostess i was bartender cocktail waitress um i was a receptionist for a local construction company answering ten phones i was not good Mm -hmm. um i think everybody should be a waitress yeah yeah, that is a tough job and i I, you should do it because you get a good look on people on how they treat you so um it was fun bartender was really fun yeah People tip well yeah. as the night goes on.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, probably it, it kind of helps you stand up for yourself and and exert yourself and develops that side as well and work ethic.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I I think that's probably one of the biggest things I would say. My parents gave me a good work ethic. You know, neither one of them graduated high school. No, excuse me. They graduated high school and neither one went to college. And um, they went to college when we were growing up. My father Mm -hmm. ended up going to Armstrong, as did my mother. My mother had got an associate's degree for nursing, but their philosophy was um, not when you're not if you'll go to college it's when okay and you you know you, they would help but you were responsible for paying and you're going to go to college right. i always joke around. i went to georgia southern and dad said you come back with a seat you're going to armstrong so yeah, so but my little sister didn't get the same one. Uh, they were, you know, by the eighth kid, I think they were a little tired. So she got away with a lot. She hears this, she'll disagree. But
0: so if you got a C, you had to come back and live at home and yes. go to school down. And the street. I was
1: never going. To, I did not want to come back home and live with my parents. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, you I kept grades up.
0: Crowded bedroom. That's right. right. Even even then. Right?
1: Well, by then there was only two left, so okay. it was a really vacant house. <laughs>
0: Windsor Forest at that time is, is running the neighborhood. It was biking it's around. A
1: huge. Uh, I mean, we just grew up and ran the whole neighborhood. And uh, since I grew up in Windsor, um, some of my dearest friends were um, and my roommates in college were went to Windsor Forest High School. Mm-hmm. I worked at the local movie theater all through high school. Uh, it was the Wise Cinema back in the day, and it was there on Largo. And so all the other, I mean, I'm. Dear friends who ended up being roommates and in in each other's weddings, so I loved Windsor Forest. It was a good place to grow up.
0: You said Georgia Southern. <laughs> you were not leaning toward the law at that point. No,
1: um, I thought I was going to be. Uh, I my major was sociology. I had looked. I wanted to be a social worker, or um, you know, I was young,
0: glassy eyed.
1: Yes, I wanted. Thought about joining the Peace Corps. Okay. Um, St. Vincent's. I had some really good mentors there. Some nuns that were. Um, loved them to death and they were very good to me and and i and they were very giving people and i thought that would be the way to go um and so i really thought about uh, becoming a defects worker social worker and then there was a job fair because you know my parents is you know you need a job you're not coming back home Um, and there was uh, I got an internship with the victim witness assistance program which was here in Savannah it was the first comprehensive victim witness assistance program in the state of Georgia Elizabeth Stewart started it Mm -hmm. um, and I think she had gone to the then DA who was Spencer Lawton and um, Spencer was a a, I mean he just his ideas were grand forward thinker um, and he realized that Victims of crime um, were not their needs were not being met. You know, back in the day, you know, a victim is only seen as a piece of evidence, and they are their their testimony. It's another piece of evidence in a trial. Mm-hmm. So I think he saw that we we have a, a duty not only to you know prosecute the case successfully for the victim, but to bring the victim. Out of it whole. I mean, Mm -hmm. the worst thing you can do is re-victimize them. Back in the day, you know, let's say you're a sexual assault victim, you're sitting out there on the concrete bench next to the um, maybe the defendant's family. Mm -hmm. That's a really bad place to be. kind of going in the 80s ronald reagan did a study uh president ronald reagan because they saw an increase in crime and a decrease in successful prosecution and they realized that one of the problems is that the victims were being revictimized by the criminal justice system and so that's why we have the C- crime victims bill of rights in the state of georgia mm-hmm. marcy's law that became const- uh, constitutional amendment yeah, this year last year yeah yeah. So anyway, I got an internship with the Victim Witness Assistance Program back in 1986, mm-hmm. which I guess I'm showing my age. Mm-hmm. Um, but And I loved it. They're really good people. Um, and they applied for grants uh, and Helen Bradley, well now Helen Bradley, Helen Smith at the time, um, applied for grants and I got a job right out of, law, mm-hmm. right out of college working for them, a right. victim advocate and a volunteer coordinator. Right. And the volunteer coordinator was really hard, uh, you know, at 22 having to go. I'd have to go speak to groups and get people to come and join us. Um, mm. And um, th- that was a learning experience to do public speaking.
0: And that experience and seeing everything eventually led you to say, I want to go ahead and take the next yep. step and go.
1: I-, I would sit in the courtroom with victims and I was watching these attorneys just kept thinking, I could do that. I could do that. So I applied, um, got into law school and, you know, and I had. Oh, I guess three roommates in law school three other girls they're phenomenal uh, women um, but they went into the um, the I guess civil arena where that's mm-hmm. where the money is as an attorney mm-hmm. um, but I went I went to become a prosecutor mm-hmm.
0: and that pretty much you you had decided early on that's yes. the direction you wanted to go yep there,
1: that's right? all I ever um, wanted to do was be a prosecutor
0: you said it that was just driven by seeing seeing the, the people the, the
1: prosecutors and the victims in the cases yeah I mean you know I mean I, I like fighting for the underdog you know right. and, and i really enjoyed it and i have greg mcconnell who is my chief assistant was one of my mentors Uh, john hope was another attorney he was a prosecutor in our office he's deceased now phenomenal um we i mean just to watch some of these attorneys phenomenal at what they could do greg jacobs who is retired now one of the best prosecutors i've ever seen in a courtroom Mm -hmm. um and so and i saw these cases and that's what i wanted to do so my first job At a law school, uh, Greg McConnell actually ended up helping me get uh, Cherokee County. It was very rural then. Mm -hmm. Um, It used to be one circuit. It was called the Blue Ridge Judicial Circuit. It was Forsyth and Cherokee County. Uh, Mm -hmm. They've now split and become their own. Um, I I joke, but uh, it was women chewed tobacco and spit better than men up in Cherokee County. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it was very very rural, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was great learning experience. Gary Moss was my boss and. yeah, my first trial was in a double-wide trailer. There was a hole in the ground. And I joke around because I kept thinking during my closing, I'm going to fall through this hole because I'm a klutz. Um, and I could see the ants crawling around. Right, so right.
0: it, it was good. Watch where you put your heel down. Yeah, right? yep, just yep. stuck it, right in there. And they thing.
1: built a courthouse after that. And it's now, I mean, you travel through Cherokee, and it looks like just an extension of Atlanta. A, yeah, beautiful nice, country so. up there. And it was a good place to learn. Right,
0: right. Yeah. So you mentioned that the social work was idealism. Yeah. A lot of people look at prosecution is idealism right when you went to law school did you see you obviously never strayed right did you see uh, classmates that came in idealistic and wanting to to do that and then end up going defense and civil or well
1: and i think the lore of of income you know yeah. i mean I, when i got out of law school uh, I mean, it was Mercer, it was private school. I, you know, probably had $60,000 worth of debt, not including interest. Mm-hmm. And my job as prosecutor was $26,000. Oh, wow. And so, you know, my roommates coming out, they were making 50 mm-hmm. or 60, you know, depending on these big law firms in Atlanta. And you're, at that point, you're driven by, um, you know, I've I've got to pay the rent, I've got to pay my car, my insurance, and I've got to pay my law school debt. Right. So, I mean, you can understand. Yeah. It's interesting. There was four of us that are uh, dear friends, and they're not practicing anymore. One yeah. is, and the rest have um, gone. You know, and people make choices, but it's yeah. just interesting. You know, with families and all, um, it's it's hard to balance. As anybody can tell you, you know, yeah. full time job. Full time children, full time wife, husband, yeah. you know all that. Yeah, it's, it's not tough. a
0: forty hour a week job. No, yet, it's not. So. No. So you you start your first jobs up in Cherokee County. What gets you back home?
1: I never. You know, when you're a kid, you think I'm never coming back home. I'm gonna go off, and I, and it's funny. I I missed it, and so I can remember Spencer came mm-hmm. up. There was a meeting in Cherokee County, and and um, he I've always loved Spencer. He's a great guy, and he had told me they had an opening, so I applied. Um, that was back in 1995. I was up in Cherokee for three years, came back in 95. And it's weird, because think about it. I was a victim advocate when I left, mm-hmm. and when I come back, so I'm now a prosecutor with these guys that were, you know, I idolized. So it was a, right. it was a learning curve for me, um, but I, I loved it. And I started out in state court. I was doing felonies up in Cherokee, mm-hmm. and they said, it's state court, you want it? And I'm like, well, yeah, get your foot in the door. And mm-hmm. so did uh, prosecuted misdemeanors for 86, uh, 95, three years. And then I was moved to Superior Court.
0: Was it a big adjustment to go from a a relatively rural area to a more urban area?
1: Very much so. And I'll tell you, people don't realize it. Um, So in Cherokee, it was a little bit more Mm -hmm. pro-prosecution, maybe law and order in very rural. Um, You know, I think they had like one homicide in Cherokee County, one of the years that I was there, um, and then here it it is an urban area, and it's I believe you win or lose your case in jury selection, right? Um, and depending on what your case is, you have to be very careful in terms of you know asking the right questions, so I can learn who you are in jury selection. Mm-hmm. If it's a domestic violence case versus if it's a theft versus if it's an elder abuse. Um, and you learn your jurors are very different here. My first trial when I came back here, I was in state court. I tried a DUI, lost it, got my butt kicked. Mm-hmm. And um, and I realized, why did I lose it? That's what I thought to myself. What would you do wrong? Okay, well, one of the things I realized is you can't treat a DUI like a murder, Mm -hmm. because unfortunately or fortunately, Savannah, a lot of people drink here. Um, So your approach has to be very different. And it was funny because uh, Greg Crawford, he kicked my butt on the first case, an attorney, great attorney. And my goal was to try another case with him, and I kicked his butt the next time. I mean, that's all I got thinking is. But I learned, you know, most, most prosecutors will do that. Either when you win or lose, how could I have done it better? What did I do wrong? Oof, didn't ask the right question. You know, what's the nuance in terms of getting forth your, your idea of, of the, how the case occurs? Or what was the motive, that kind of thing?
0: Well, if you can tell me how to answer to get excluded next time no
1: no no i'm not going to give you an answer my sister did that too i've got jury duty what can i do and i'm like just be on it you'll enjoy it you know because we've found that out a lot of times we have grand jury so grand jury is set by statute so we have four terms of court and the first day you look at the grand jurors that are selected by the superior court judge they are not selected by me the looks on their face is like oh my lord shoot me now Mm -hmm. by the end i think they really enjoy it because you see a facet of life that you have never seen before and i know you yeah, I, you were on it so i'm yeah, sure you I, can answer that more than me yeah i
0: sat in that seat and my number was really low and i got i got picked and it was it was a uh, I don't know if rewarding is the right way to put it but it's a fulfilling thing and
1: and so your civic duty, which really makes yeah. a difference because you had the first officer-involved shooting. You were our foreman on the first officer-involved shooting that I actually had to handle when I took office.
0: Yeah, and that was a long three or four days, to say the least.
1: And, and, and what's interesting with that, you know, that case occurred soon after Ferguson. It was 30 days after Ferguson, our officer-involved shooting. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be very careful because I think what the I feel, what the community wanted to know, how, whatever the outcome is, that it was done fairly. Mm-hmm. For both sides, and that we were transparent, and so our decision in researching it—and I say ours—the kudos go to Greg McConnell. Yeah. Um, He—that's my chief assistant. He—we—and it was funny because right after Ferguson occurred, we were watching the news, and Greg and I were like, "What would we do if it occurred here in Savannah?" Mm-hmm. And Greg and I said, "Lord, Greg, we'd have to make sure." And so the shooting occurred—the officer-involved shooting occurred—and we researched it, and we decided that as a grand jury, you have criminal powers to oversee criminal cases and you have powers to over civil cases or or you have civil powers and we decided to take that route and some people are like what are you doing but we thought that would be the best way to be transparent so that whatever y'all did um, somebody could come back and look at it. Yeah. Um, and then after that, um, the law was changed. And that's how, But now, that is how you have to handle officer-involved shootings.
0: Yeah, because that was an interesting uh, grand jury case because the grand jury usually only sees the prosecution's evidence. Correct. And reviewing the, this officer-involved shooting, we saw, I don't think they were, it wasn't necessarily defense evidence but we had the young man who was was killed by the officer his family came in and testified and talked right. to us and it was a little bit more involved and it was uh, it was eye-opening
1: it, it, it was yeah, um and um, and, was. and i thought it our mission or goal was is to make sure it was handled properly number one and number two that it, we were transparent on what we did and i think that occurred and um, you in fact wrote the i know everybody all the grand jurors agreed or or yeah. signed on but you had to write the presentment of, of yeah. the findings yeah yeah and and that's what we did and we also said that we made the file avail- available to anybody who wants to come and look at it and the transcript That's right. so i mean and i think that's about as transparent as you can be because on the other hand the statute or officer involved shootings uh the law says that an officer has the right to come in and testify which is unusual because mm-hmm. if someone is you know done something they usually don't come before grand yeah. jury which makes it a little different
0: yeah yeah he was he was potentially the defendant right. at some point correct right. the difference makers podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick but there's a catch of course the two-week wait between episodes keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters we deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com/newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com/newsletters. to uh we got on this talking a little bit about jury selection and yes. how you learned early on that that was a pretty key part of it being an, an ada in the office mm-hmm. and then where does it go from there i know you you, you leave the office for for a certain period
1: yes uh, i left the office um i had been in the office uh, as a prosecutor just an assistant just i always say a line prosecutor um at the end i was an lgb's prosecutor um when spencer retired there was an election um and then Larry Chisholm won. Right. And, and he you ma- did not run in that one. He I did not. later. No, but. I actually, I know people don't. I never intended, never wanted to do it. Uh, mm. Politics is a strange world. Yes. Um, but at some point, um, I left the office um, along with other people. And mm. um, Judge Friesman actually gave me a job as a staff attorney. So I was a staff attorney for about a year. Mm. And I'd say then she kicked me out of my nest. And she says, mm-hmm. if you're going... I had made a decision, because I, I love the district attorney's office, and I love what they do. I love the people in there. And I think what we do is what is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just did not agree with how it was being handled. Mm-hmm. Um, so she kicked me out, um, and so I decided to run. Mm-hmm. And there is no book on running for office. I right. went to a lot of people, and I'm like, what do you do? And it, I've learned there is no book. You just... Figure out what you got to do and just keep on going.
0: So for you, it was a, a lot of district attorneys running. You're a lawyer. You have political aspirations. You run right. for DA. From DA, you run for yeah. mayor, or whatever. Right. That was never. No, no, your I have no interest in that.
1: I, 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 there are people who do, and they, you know, go become judges or, um, um, I don't know, attorney general, governor. Right. I, no, I, I like our office, and I, and I, from my point of view, it was not being run how I would like to see it run. Right. So, um, you know, career prosecutor.
0: And when you come in, and, and then all of a sudden you're leading it, are you are you you're bringing that that mindset, or are you basically being able to step back and say, "Hey, I've got a big staff. My job is now more management administrative."
1: It is now. I handle cases still. I do mm-hmm. all the officer involved shootings, um, and I, because I do the officer involved shootings, I also handle um, the crimes um, that. Uh, where an officer is harmed, not all of them, but uh, we currently have a murder case, and we've handled—I've um, handled several murders in the past year. I'm on the death penalty case. Um, I've got a uh, embezzlement case that's coming up, just to keep keep me active in the courtroom. Not as much as I'd like because we have over 140 employees, yeah. so um, management is hard. Personnel is hard. Right. I, I've got. Actually, I've been very blessed. I have some really good people in in management mm-hmm. that they care for the, their employees. I actually love to see when one of my deputy chiefs come to me and I'm like, "What? what's going on? Why is this going on? And I like to see them defend their people and explain to me how we fix it because that's how it should be. I should be the one, you know, holding your feet to the fire, but you're defending your employees because we've got really good employees. But, you know, it is an office and there's a lot of personnel and that's the things where you want to bang your head up against the wall. Yeah.
0: And 21,000 cases and and getting new ones, unfortunately, every day.
1: Right. We went from 18,000 last year to 21,000 this year. I mean, I think we increased because of the new police department. Um, And we're always looking for different ways to, you know, we dispose of as many as that are coming in. Mm -hmm. And now, keep in mind, in my office, we handle misdemeanors and felonies. We've got juvenile court and we've got child support. That's Mm -hmm. not including child support cases in the number. Um, But a lot of places don't. uh, You have... Like Cobb County has a district attorney and a solicitor, Mm -hmm. um, but we handle all of them.
0: One of the big changes, I think, since you came into office is it it has become a little bit more efficient. If there was a big uh, public criticism of your predecessor, it was that things were really slow or things were getting dropped. How do you, with that much intake and that much case, how do you kind of keep the wheels moving without getting... For lack of a better word, reckless
1: about it, and that's tough. Um, it, you look at programs. Um, I guess I have to say first off, it's a, just a huge shout out. It's putting people in charge who really. Andre Pretorius is my deputy chief of state court. I think they have like six thousand, seven thousand cases in state court. So we're looking ways. Um, there, there's two. Well, I guess my number one priority is to make sure there's justice for victims. I mean that that's that's my job. You know, I don't choose my defendant. I don't choose my victim. I don't. Choose the crime. It comes to me, um, so that's the first. And we have a duty to make sure that they are notified and informed and have a voice in the court system. Second step is: Are there cases that we can get out quickly? You know, if you're a youthful nonviolent offender, we created a pretrial diversion program. So that's and that's Andre Pretorius. So let's say you you're 18 years old and it's a shoplifting, okay, nonviolent first-time offender. How can I move this case along to keep it from clogging the criminal justice system? that you make restitution to the victim of what you paid. And so the pretrial diversion program is by law. It's, it's in the district attorney's office. And so we, um, we notify you. We look at the cases. We run your criminal history. And then I say, okay, Mr. Smith, um, he, it, it appears here you've got a theft by shoplifting and you're eligible for pretrial diversion. Let me tell you what that is, that this is a program that you're going to have to pay a fine. You're going to have to get a job. If we see you haven't, don't have your high school education, you're going to have to get a GED. You're going to have to do some community service. It's for a period of time. They come in with us. They bring the proof to us. And at the end, if you successfully complete this program, we'll, we will expunge your record. So this, this, this error you made when you were 18 is not going to be carried and hung over your head for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You made a stupid mistake. You, you've made the victim whole. And by the way, we notify the victim of this beforehand to make sure they're in agreement with it. Right. Um, and so we see a really good success rate um, with the cases. On top of it, that fine does not go to me. That is paid right into the coffers of Chatham County government to pay for the services of the uh, district attorney's office. And in the past couple of years, we brought in over $800,000 paid into Chatham County. And we also believe in the fine. I, I mean, I think it's like anything, uh, because people have said, why don't you do away with the fine? And what Andre Pretorius, my chief, is no, no he says, because if they pay that fine, that shows that they're invested in it. Mm-hmm. They have to, if they're given in it to it, they're invested and they're willing to complete the program. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have uh, created that program in Superior Court. Probably not as... Um, robust as state court based on the crimes, you know, the severity of the crimes. But um, it, that's a really good way to take cases that are in the system and get them out. Um, I'm also, uh, Judge Penny Friesman became mm-hmm. Chief Judge when Judge Carp retired. And she has instituted um, a meeting between myself, the public defender, and her. And it's more looking at administration. What are the processes we, we, we can fine-tune? Why isn't this working? Um, you know, we keep hitting these bumps. What's going on? You know, because we come from our different views 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 or our different areas or – I don't even think that's the correct word – what our missions are. right? But we're all in agreement. We want it to move more smoothly, more quickly. The process, let's get it going.
0: Proactive is one thing that I know that you just mentioned, the the Mm pretrial program. You have some other ones as well where you're trying to get ahead of things and in front of things. What what else you got going on?
1: We have a program called Intercept. Um, It is – so I guess a number of years ago, uh, my predecessor had started the program. Um, I think it was called Youth Intercept at that time. And um, we applied for and received over $600,000 grant to expand the program. And so the theory behind it is, uh, and I think it is working, um, we've got kids ages 12 to 25, predominantly male, some female, who are at risk. And what I mean is that these kids are coming into the hospital. We've got a great trauma unit that really saves a lot of people here. Um, But um, they're coming in with an intentional injury. That means they came in with a gunshot wound. You're 16 years old and you've been shot. Frankly, that's how it is. You've got the medical people that are healing you. You've got the police who are investigating the case. And then we have a program that we're available 24-7. They're on call. They come. And they come in, and they're going to talk to you, not probably to you, the victim who have been shot because you're not going to be listening, but your mother your grandmother and say, look, you know, he's going down a bad path here. Um, Statistics show if somebody doesn't intercede on his behalf, he is either going to kill the person or, or shoot the person or injure the person that did this to him. Um, or he's gonna become a homicide victim or another shooting victim again. Mm -hmm. So our hope is that let's intercede, it's voluntary. And we have seen the people that have entered the programs have been very successful. We always use the example of a case we had of a kid who came in, he was shot, we talked to the mother, saying, "Look, you know, we're here to help you. We want this kid out of it. You know, it's not going to go well." He accepted the services. He graduated, the first in his household to graduate from high school. He is in welding school. Great job! Really good salary with welding. Okay. We offered the same services to his cousin who had come into the hospital with a shooting. Uh, or I think it was a shooting, uh, gunshot wound. Um, he did not. Accept our services, and he is in jail awaiting murder charges. He may have already been prosecuted. I'd have to go back and look because I know that is an example. Because I, the, Cheryl Jones is the head of that program, okay. so we saw that it was working well. We have now have a someone in the program um, intercept who goes into the schools. We work with certain schools because if you think about it, I've got four prosecutors at juvenile court. They see the cases coming across their desk, and they're like, "Gosh, I mean, they're all kids, They're juveniles." So you know, we see a lot of kids coming out of this one school. Mm -hmm. you know it's unfortunate so we're going to focus on that school what can we do to help i mean the teachers can you imagine i mean my huge shout out for them you're trying to teach kids but on top of that nowadays they're like having to do so much more go for the welfare yeah yeah i mean yeah gotta look out for the kid you know if they're hungry um what's going on at home so our hope is that in a lot of times you'll find that mom's working two jobs trying to put you know food on the table so how can we be there for the kid mm-hmm. kid acts up at you know whatever school it is we get a call we show up and like, all right johnny what's going on you know and they say johnny's acting up and it's like well you know is it because what? What? what's the reason so we're kind of like the the person they call right. uh, and we're seeing some success there as well we also mm-hmm. offer um you know tutoring um mm-hmm. or if the kid and i use kid the child um mm-hmm. You know, does the child need some counseling? You know, but mom, mom's working two jobs; she can't get them there. So we do that. We, we part of the grant we got, we received a van, and so we'll pick the kid up from school. We'll take the child to the counseling or to the tutor or whatever they need. And on top of it, we also want to open or expand their horizons. We do a summer law camp with this Intercept um, every summer, and they come into our office and we see these kids. So we have two groups: kids that just want to come in because we've offered at schools, and some kids that are at-risk youth. And so, as you can imagine, the at-risk youth, the only time they've ever come into the criminal justice system is where they're a defendant, a victim, or a witness. So our thought process was, let's, let's let them see uh, the criminal justice system in a different light. And so they come in, we, and I, usually when I go in and introduce myself, you know, they're all sitting there sullen, looking at me like, you know, don't want to be here. And, and you ask them, what do you want to do with your life? and professional football player, or NBA basketball player. Really great aspirations, but statistically, that's probably not gonna happen. Long odds. (laughs) It is, the odds are long. So we come in and I have my prosecutors who volunteer and they'll sit with them and we do a trial at the end of the week. You know, somebody's the prosecutor, somebody's the defense attorney, somebody's sitting up there with the judge. We have a judge come in and a witness and they try the case and, and they love it and they see it on a different, uh, see criminal justice criminal justice system differently. We have a big luncheon at the end and it's interesting because then you say, what do you think you want to be? Maybe a lawyer, um, maybe an engineer. So it's it's fascinating. And one of the things we realized is some of these kids have never even been to the beach. Mm-hmm. And so with Intercept, they take the kids, whether it's to a movie or a play. I think if, if you're in a world, you live in a neighborhood that is maybe controlled by – your drug dealers are the ones with the cars and the money Mm -hmm. you know what's your what's your idol going to be but if we can pull you out and say you know what the world is bigger than this neighborhood you live in and look you can be so much more I mean you got to give them something to live for
0: Mention kids in schools. Another program you have involves truancy and kids yes. that maybe don't show up.
1: So w- there are two different worlds we live in. It, my juvenile prosecutors, um, they deal with the kids um, that come in on a truancy, you know, that for whatever reasons. Um, but we they reached out to us, um, I guess the schools, um, by there's a st- uh, law in the books that a parent can be held accountable for a child skipping school. And so we get letters, uh, we get a list of people where the kids haven't gone to school and we'll send out letters to the parents saying, hey. And it's on my letterhead, signed by me, saying it's my understanding that Johnny has missed sixty days of school. Uh, when you're getting to sixty days, Johnny's going to have a hard time passing. Um, and then if you got a kid who's eighteen in, in fourth grade, I mean, you know, it's not going to go well. Right. So we send Oof. it out, um, a letter out saying, hey, you know, you can be prosecuted for this. Um, and what we really want to do is bring them in. What's the what's the problem? You know, is it because mom's working two jobs, doesn't have the capability of getting the kid to school or is it the kids having some you know, psychological issues? Let's find out what's going. I have no interest in prosecuting parents, mm-hmm. but I do think parents should be held accountable to get their child to school. And so we have been very successful in terms of getting these kids back into school, figuring out what the problem is. At the end, I mean, I, I'm not in that. I, I, I don't want to prosecute people but I want them to obey the law, um, and so it's been very successful. We, I, have, I think, we've had to prosecute one mother.
0: to hear more from meg in a moment but let's pause and recognize the difference makers presenting sponsor the savannah economic development authority the team at seda is pushing to make savannah a great place to work and live seda is committed to creating growing and attracting jobs and investment in the savannah region whether a business looking to relocate to the savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand seda is the centrifuge of a propeller making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. One thing I know is dear to your heart just because of your history is is victims. Yes. And you've got a family justice center. Yes.
1: So um, it's a family justice center. Very grateful that the city gave us a building. Um, we are in the process. And then Paul Henshey with St. Joe's Candler has given us uh, furniture. A huge shout out for that. Um, and Salvation Army. And then we have some groups that are willing to help us as well. So the theory behind a family justice center, and, and I, I joke around, I don't – believe in reinventing the wheel. I do believe in looking across the United States and what's working, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, There is a Family Justice Center, I think there's like 20 of them. The big guru is in San Diego, and they do a training on it. So I sent my special victims prosecutors out to San Diego, and it's like learn, you know, get everything they have and let's bring it back and make it adaptable to Savannah. And the theory behind the Family Justice Center, and I actually, we're very lucky here, a huge shout out is that all the victim service providers, that's Safe Shelter for Battered Women, the Rape Crisis Center, um, the Coastal Children's Advocacy Center, and then Victim Witness Assistance Program, which is in my office, have all agree with what they've agreed to work with, with me on this program because you got to leave the egos at the door. And I'm not looking to take over their stuff. I don't want to take over their stuff. The theory behind it is you got a victim. and Because I always, always say that people forget um, – when you, had a, you have a domestic violence victim, predominantly women, we do have some men who've been victims of domestic violence. Who do you think are being victimized on the sideline? Mm, the, kids. the kids. They're seeing their their mother being beaten, strangled on a daily basis. Um, and there's something called ACEs. It's acute childhood experiences. And so they do an assessment to see, I mean, you know, PTSD, statistics show that, you know, kids who watch it either become abusers themselves or become abused. And that's why they call this, you know, the the cycle of violence. They call it the cycle of violence in terms of, you know, domestic violence itself, but then why it continues on other generations. Um, But so the theory is, is that you use existing resources. We are not wanting to create more programs. We take all the programs, because we are very blessed in Savannah to have a lot of programs. We um, bring the victim and the children to the center. The prosecutor will come to the center. Um, the, The detective will come to the center and then possibly the outreach coordinator for safe shelter. will do an assessment and to see what services this victim needs. In San Diego, when they created the Family Justice Center, they saw a reduction in domestic violence homicides and I want to say three four year period. I, I don't know the extra number from thirty to three, and that's huge. And we've had domestic we've had two domestic violence homicides this year. They also saw a reduction in domestic violence. They saw an increase in successful prosecutions, a decrease in uh, recantations. We victims come in all the time. No, 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 it didn't occur. I, I actually, you know, fell into his hand. You know, it's stuff it's that they'll do because they're afraid. Um, and so. Um, our hope is, with this Family Justice Center, that we can use, pull all the resources together. You know, studies show, so let's say I was I was beaten last night by my husband. Um, police respond. Make a police report. I have to go to the hospital. That's step one. I then have to, um, you know, because many times in domestic violence, it's about control. He has the money. I don't have any money to get a divorce, but I'll have to go to legal aid. And then what if I need follow-up care for my injuries? And then I have to go to the, go see talk to a detective. Then I have to go to court. Then I meet with victim witness. There's like nine, ten places this victim has to go. Do they have money? I mean, do they have a car? And so we see that our victims fall to the wayside because they're having to to go to so many places. So why not bring them to one and bring the services? It's much easier for us. Bring it all there. Do wraparound services. Do an assessment. We have applied for a federal grant. We'll know early September $800,000 $800,000 grant, and in that grant, we are asking for a project manager for the Family Justice Center. We're asking for a psychologist that we could bring for counseling for the children and for the, the woman and for other services, you know, that we we're going to have to pay for the lights. The city gave us the the building. We're very blessed, um, but we're going to have to, you know, pay for, mm. you know, utilities and everything else, so yeah. we're really excited about that.
0: I have two more topics for you before I let you go, and these are, okay. are a little bit more philosophical and deep dive, and we we got, we touched on it earlier, and that's the fact you have a, a Big staff. Yep. Um, that that you have always gone toward prosecution side, but you were in law school with people that went into personal injury and people that basically handle estates. or yes. When it comes to the legal, to the law, there's all different areas. Uh, they're all probably pretty stressful. Yep. Yeah. But I'm guessing that that your office is – the people in your office probably face stresses that others don't. Uh, How do you deal with that?
1: Well, and and that's a good question, and we probably don't always deal with it well. You know, um, you – and I always joke around, you don't become a prosecutor for the money. Mm -hmm. That ain't happening. Um, We don't make – they don't make a lot of money. Um, You do it because you have a passion. It may you may be there because of something that occurred in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be there um, for whatever reasons, and I don't ask. Um, that, but you're passionate about what you do. Um, it is really tough, and you do see the burnout. And now we joke, and I hope I don't offend anybody with this: is that you know, unfortunately people cuss in our office and i have some wonderful administrative assistants and they are very good godly women and, and i have to tell my prosecutors you got to shut the door man but on the other hand I said because you're offending them on the other hand if you're sitting there looking at autopsy photos of a baby you know it, 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 it's a stress reliever it's not the best way and so i, I i've joked around i'm like my admin used to shut my door and I'm like, thanks Kim. And she was loved. she's wonderful. And she's a make, you got to shut the door because it's so frustrating. And we see the underbelly of society. We see the worst of the worst. Um, we don't have a good way of relieving stress. I have people in my office that are, you know, they do soccer and stuff like that. That's good. Um, you're I don't okay. know. We tried yoga once in our office. It didn't work well. So the short answer is we don't do it well, and we should come up with. I've got a great office manager who's always trying to do things because the other you've got a you know we went from eighteen thousand cases to twenty one thousand cases in the office. Now my prosecutors hit hard, but my admins, my secretaries, they're hit hard. It's nonstop. Um, we try, and I I don't know if it's good or bad, but we try to be bring things for our admins more than we do to our prosecutors. I mean, you know we. With we have a summer conference with the prosecutors, we have to get a certain amount of hours every year to get, have our law license. and so while we're gone, my office manager does a lot of fun things with them. Um, I was asked at a county commission what's my retention policy? you know, what do I do for retention? And I'm like, well, we have a pizza party on Friday. I mean, I don't have excess money to give people bonuses. We do try to acknowledge, because um, I've got some really hard workers. We try to acknowledge, you know, hey, Garrett got a, a, a victory today, and we send out a notice, and that's, that's about it. I, yeah. I wish I could say I have more, but we don't.
0: Yeah. The other part of that, of course, is, is human nature. You're going to become jaded. Yes, you do. And how do you fight that? How do you, uh, how do you kind of internalize that side of it?
1: That now that is probably through trainings and Mm -hmm. seminars and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And you've got to be careful. And probably other people keep you in check. Right. You know. And and that's sometimes you realize I need to take you know okay special victims. I was doing elder abuse. I did it for several years. I did need a break. Yeah. Um, you know, when you see you know a woman bludgeoned to death, and you're having to sit with the family, or or raped and beaten, you know, an 86 year old woman, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we do every so often. You've got to rotate out of it um, because it's 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 hard. You know, uh, I won't name the prosecutor, but I had a prosecutor with a rape case, and she was in tears, right. and she was in tears because she knew how important it was, and there was a lot of stress on her. Yeah. And I've always told them, you know criminal justice only works criminal justice system works you're gonna lose some Great. because that you should lose some and i'm like i'm never gonna slam you for losing i said but if you've got the passion to try that's what you should now sometimes you have to look at a case and and you have to sit with the victim and it's like i believe you but i don't think we can do this mm-hmm. um and that's that's learned with experience and that's what you should do to it as a prosecutor that this is not a case that needs to go to trial this is something, um, or this case needs to be dismissed because there's not enough evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, not fun to do it, I'll have to tell you, mm-hmm. but you have to do it sometimes. But I, I'm never going to slam somebody for going to try and and if you lose it, because you tried.
0: We interrupt the Difference Makers podcast to remind you about our other regular podcasts, such as the At Savannah and Commute. Hosted by yours truly, with a new episode that posts every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The commute is the easiest way to keep up with the latest news and happenings that Savannians are talking about. Search for The Commute with That Savannah Opinion on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. Episodes are also available through the SavannahNow.com website at savannahnowcom podcast. You can also check out our other podcasts, such as Georgia Southern Extra, with its focus on Georgia Southern football, the Do Savannah podcast, with its emphasis on local arts and entertainment. And the daily See You in the Morning podcast that offers a roundup of the day's headlines. The last thing I wanted to ask you was uh, relationships with judges. Yes. Uh, Obviously, you said you worked in in who is now the the chief judge. You worked under her as a staff attorney. And I know you have to work closely with them. But then when you try cases for them... It's different they're gonna be hard on you they are and, and they're gonna hold you just as accountable as they are the defense attorney they do. how how does that dynamic work and
1: sometimes and good it? sometimes not bad um it, I would say and I, I I have seen we've got a good bench you know um we really do and I think they care and they' they you know I don't want you to always rule my way but well I do. <laughs> you you want them to. You shouldn't rule my way because I want you to. I, no. If you give me a fair field, you know, right. you look at the law, you make a decision. Sometimes it goes my way, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I may agree with you, sometimes I don't. Um, I mean, that's just the law, the lay of the land. Um, but I think we've got a pretty fair bench mm-hmm. that tries, and you know, I've gotta argue my spot, they've gotta argue theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's, as long as it's a fair field, I'm okay with that. Now on the other side, is as I've stated before, um, the public defender, myself, and the judge, chief judge, Friesman, are getting together about processes. You know, you leave the cases at the door, but how do we streamline? How do we make better? And Judge Friesman is, you know, she started the um, mental health court and uh, veterans court. So she, uh, I think she's a forward thinker. I've Mm -hmm. seen that. And so she's looking at ways to make the system run faster. Mm -hmm. Or not faster, maybe more efficient would be the better way. Mm -hmm. And faster might be good as well.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting if... if if you read the paper you know that that you have butted heads with certain judges in right, this, in right. this circuit and we and we have other issues with with judges in the county that I don't know uh, that at what level you guys end up crossing swords and not crossing swords but it obviously has to remain professional and not personal how I don't want to say how difficult that is. i know it's difficult but how do you how do you manage that how do you figure out which battle you want to fight and which ones you don't
1: well so I think you hit the nail on the head is that you have to be professional and you know you can't take it personal um it's that you know I feel like this is what is occurring I go in there I I I, I argue my motion um I lose it I move on I, I and I don't know if everybody will understand this Bugs Bunny years ago I don't know if you remember there is a sheepdog and a wolf and it's like, hey Joe, hey Pete, and every morning they clock in, and then they go into this area where the sheepdog's protecting the sheep, and the wolf's trying to eat the sheep, and they're fighting. And then you, when you go, they clock okay. out and they say, see you next day. I feel like that's us sometimes. And, and trust me, I'm sure the judge sometimes wants to throttle me. Or, and I mean, that's just life. But you go into the courtroom, you duke it out, and then you walk out, and you're like, okay, now I may see you know Joe Blow mm-hmm. after hours and say, you know, he's a public defender. How you doing? Good. How are you? It's not always that smooth, I would love to say that, but you really, and and that's the young attorneys that you have to remind. Right, right. That's what I was thinking. You do. Um, It's taken me a long time. Sometimes you're know you like, oh, and you're like, you have to remember, okay, take a step back. It's more because you think the judge is ruling against me. It's not right. I'm like, he has to look at both sides. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he can rule incorrectly and we can appeal him and win. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he's right. Or maybe it's right on the line for him, and he's looking at the big picture, and I've got my my side over here, and he's got to look at everything. I mean, we don't—we're not always going to agree. Um, I do say that we've got a good bench; we really do, for the most part, um, because I've seen other areas where they don't so uh, but you're right it's the young ones you have to say okay and they want to come to me sometimes and they want to take this on i'm like no 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 not this one sit back down we're not we're not we're not taking this fight on we're not going to win uh greg mcconnell always says don't fight that battle unless you know you're going to win that war yeah. and sometimes we fought a battle and we didn't win that war and you know you got the wounds on you to realize don't do that again yeah, yeah.
0: learning lessons yes Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you very much for thank coming, you for in having and me, giving yeah. us a lot of time. And uh, uh, I, I speak for the community and say thank you for for what you do and what your office does. And
1: I've got good people. I mean, and I always say that we ha- I have some phenomenal people who are very passionate about what they do. Yeah. yeah, and I'm blessed there. I really am. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks to Meg Heat for sharing her insights on difference makers and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as the Georgia Ports Authority's Griff Lynch, the Savannah Music Festival's Maria Zuvas, and James Beard Award-winning chef Mashama Bailey, Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and savannahnow.com. Our next episode will post September the 13th. Thank you for listening.